thrilled to welcome Professor Leslie Thomas QC, a barrister at Garden Court Chambers in London, to the show. Professor Thomas is a leading expert in claims against the police and other public authorities and claims against corporate bodies with expertise across a full spectrum of civil wrongs, civil litigation, human rights, data and privacy claims. He is an expert in all aspects of inquests and public inquiries, having represented many bereaved families, in particular where there has been abuse of state or corporate power. Professor Thomas acts for claimants in judicial review proceedings and other public law proceedings. He regularly acts for clients in the Caribbean region on constitutional law challenges. He's represented claimants in clinical negligence and personal injury claims for the last 20 years. Professor Thomas is currently Professor of Law at Gresham College in London, delivering his lecture series, Death, the State and Human Rights. In November 2020, Professor Thomas won the Outstanding Contribution to Diversity and Inclusion Award at the Chambers UK Bar Awards. We will, I'm sure, hear lots more about Professor Thomas's career. But for now, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to The Passion Factor, pursuing a career in human rights. So, um, Professor Thomas, really the first question that I ask of all my guests is, is where it all started. Where, what motivated you to, to work in the human rights field? That's a difficult question because I'm not sure if there was just one point in my life where I suddenly woke up and said, oh, I'm going to do um, civil liberties, human rights work. It didn't quite happen like that with me. I think there were you know, several inflection points. I think firstly, um, so I grew up in London um, on a uh, very much a working class um, area as it then was. I went to a, a state school and I had really good teachers at my state school who really interested me in matters related to society, civil liberties, you know, issues like that. But I think the real point for me was at about 14, 15, I was on my way home from school one day and I was just stopped by the police. It was a random stop and search. And I just thought this was really wrong. And these police officers who stopped me didn't really have a good reason to stop me. I asked them why they said that I looked suspicious. I asked them why I looked suspicious. They said I fitted the description of somebody who'd committed a burglary. Um, and when I asked them in what way I fitted the description, um, they told me not to be so cheeky and to shut up. Uh, I, I can only assume that the burglar was aged about 14, 15, was black and was wearing a school uniform. Um, so, you know, um, yeah. you know that, 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 that I wanted to and stop abuses like that happening. And so I decided to study law. Um, I went to Kingston um, Law School. Um, I was inspired there by one of my professors of law, uh, a man called Chris Clarkson, who was just a fantastic law lecturer. And, you know, he really brought the subject of civil liberties live, and I thought, yeah, this is what I really want to do. And um, I did well, at, did well at uni, um, and one of my other professors of law decided to help me get a 
trainings, the traineeship, as, as we call it in the in um, England, a pupillage, which is where you spend a year following a um, more senior barrister around and learning the trade. And when I was doing the, the traineeship I got, this pupillage I got was in a commercial set of chambers. You know, I did, wasn't really interested in commercial law, but I didn't want to look a gift horse in the mouth uh, in, the, in the sense that I had this pupillage arranged by my law professor, and I was very grateful for it, but I didn't know anybody in the law. And so I was doing this commercial pupillage, and my pupil master, as we used to call them at that point, supervisor, uh, was a you know really nice man, but he represented um, um, large chemical companies and the like. And I remember on one occasion, we had to go to the settlement conference in the north of England, and he was representing this large, well-known chemical company who had blown up uh, this poor man. And there was a settlement conference with his widow, who you know he'd left the widow and two children. And when I went to this settlement conference, and um, you know everybody was in suits, uh, and you know this widow was on her own with her lawyer, and it was quite clear that all the power and the money was on our side you know we, we had a team of lawyers of about four or five lawyers uh, she was on her own with you know one lawyer and her lawyer really negotiated hard for her and that day that man earned my respect and i thought to myself you know i'm on the wrong side here and i decided at that point that i knew there was no way i was going to make, make a career as a commercial law, there's only so many insurance contracts that you can look at and get excited about. And I decided that what I wanted to do was to, you know, help the small person um, in their battle against large corporations or the state. So I didn't know I didn't quite know how to go about it, but what I decided to do was, despite the fact that I had this um, contract, I decided that what I would do would be to spend my evening in the, you know, going around the law centres in London, I volunteered my time was, and I think I was doing about four or, yeah, three or four law centres in a week. And um, at one of the law centres, I met, it actually wasn't law centre, it was um, the National Council for Civil Liberties, or as it is now known, Liberty, I was doing legal letter writing for Liberty. And I met Tony Gifford, QC there, and he invited me to his set of chambers and I went there and they decided to take me on. So <laughs> that's essentially how I got into doing civil liberties and human rights work. It's a long-winded, uh, not a straight path, but uh, it's a path that got me there. I, I think that's been that's very common for, for many of us working in, in the human rights sector, that we don't take a very linear route always. It's kind of sometimes a a, a, a weird and, and wonderful path. Um, I think certainly in my case, it was when I was doing a law degree as a student and working in a crash with um, prison with the children of prisoners. That was a moment for me that I kind of really felt that I, I wanted to kind of work with um, certainly that community of people and then um, supporting supporting them thereafter. In my very, very short bio that I gave at the start there. Um, I just gave a very small slice of, of, of your career to date, but, but 
What has been your own career path to date? Because you've worked on some incredibly interesting and high-profile um, inquiries. Well, when I started at Wellington Street, uh, which would have been 1989, it was right at the heart of the poll tax demonstrations. Mm-hmm. And I went there and I was um, going right into the deep end because I was doing all these protest cases where I was representing um, you know, protesters who were campaigning against the unfair um, system of taxation that was introduced in the UK in the late 80s, the poll tax, which led to many demonstrations and and, um, public um, disturbances. Um, I then went on to be dealing with a number of housing cases where I was representing um, homelessness um, individuals and um, making challenges to local authorities who are refusing to house homeless people. And then after about a year at Wellington Street, I moved to my present home, which is Garden Portraits, where I've been for the last 30 years. And um, I started doing, you know, really interesting human rights cases, like I was doing education cases where children had been excluded from school. I did a lot of um, um, housing benefit cases where people had been refused. Um, this this vital benefit. I did a lot of homelessness cases, disrepair cases. I moved into clinical negligence where I was taking on, you know, large um, hospitals. And then I fell into doing police actions where I was representing individuals who were bringing challenges against the police for having been um, wrongfully arrested, falsely imprisoned. Um, prosecuted, on, you know, without justification, and assaulted, you know, your typical police brutality cases. And um, coupled with that, I was doing death in, in prisons and deaths in custody. I was doing, you know, inquiries in inquests where people had died in the most suspicious circumstances, um, having been in, in the custody of the state. And uh, you know, over the years, my my um, field narrowed, and I became more and more specialist in the police cases and in the in actions involving the state and in inquests and public inquiries. So that's been my route over the last um, thirty years. The, the first bit of, of this kind of discussion for, for people who are listening is is around sort of working and breaking into to the human rights sector, um, yeah. and a sort of a few little questions are around that um for many people um who are who are wanting to work in the human rights sector and indeed many employers and this goes beyond perhaps the, the bar there um they're now asking or employers are now asking for some sort of advanced degree in human rights or public international law a sort of a further study beyond an undergraduate degree What's your sort of thoughts about that, sort of having an advanced degree? Does that assist you, do you think? Is, is it necessary now? And if so, sort of when is perhaps the best time to, to take a master's degree, given the fact that there's an expense involved, a time involved? So it'd be very interesting to hear from you about your thoughts about that further study piece. Yeah, well, I think having a solid foundation in human rights and public international law is a good thing, um, because you can't learn it all on the job. And mm. you don't quite frankly have the time to do so. I know that some of the foundational work that I learned having studied, say a subject like jurisprudence, has stood me in good stead in later years. 
and I just would not have been able to pick up some of that knowledge actually doing the job. So from that point of view, I think it's worth it. As to the currency it offers potential employers, I don't know, and I can't answer that, uh, that question, but I, I do, you know, I, I think that all education is a good thing. Um, you know, and as to when the best time to do it, you know, if you wanted to do an, an advanced or a master's degree, uh, my advice would be to do it at a time in your life you're most likely to complete the course and complete it well and get a good result. Um, you know, some some of us, we are completely exhausted by the time we finished our first degree. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, to go on and do another um, qualification immediately afterwards may not be the best thing because you might not, you might be suffering from a little bit of burnout. And, no, there are times when it, you know, it, it just starting getting your, putting your toe in the water in the world of work and doing something, even if it's something different, will, you know, reinvigorate you when you come to do your master's degree. So my, my advice is, you know, there's no one size that fits all in relation to when to do it. But as a piece of general advice, do it. Start your masters if you're going to do that at a time when you're most likely to complete it, complete it well. Absolutely, because it's an intense year and, and you want to kind of give it your all. And, and yeah, exactly. At the end of your degree, whatever it may be, you might just need some time out and testing the water and in, in the world of work might be a good place to start first. Um, sort of thinking about the work that you do, that we do as human rights professionals, what skills and qualities do you think you need to work in this area because it's a hard area, it's a difficult area, it's demanding on us in so many ways. So for those people who are starting out, what, what do you think are the key skills and qualities? Right, well, I think you need to understand that there are always two sides to human rights cases. Um, it always makes me laugh when many lawyers say they're human rights lawyers, but when you dig deeper and you ask them who they represent, um, they represent in the state, or they're representing, you know, you know, large organisations. That's not to say that they're not human rights lawyers. They are, but who you represent, I think, makes all the difference and, and impacts on the quality that you need for the job. Now, let me explain what I mean. Um, um, because the answers you get are not always the same in relation to um, the qualities that you need to be a, you know, to do these types of cases. So. For me, I represent obviously um, individuals who are seeking to enforce their human rights as opposed to defending the state who is said um, to have breached human rights. And, and the qualities that I think to do what I do are first, you need to be determined. You really need determination because oftentimes you're hitting your head against a brick wall. It's a real uphill struggle when you're taking on the might of the state. Secondly, you've got to be passionate about this. Yeah. You know, if, if you don't have passion, particularly when you're dealing with cases that are really difficult or at times seem impossible, it will be easy to be um, put off. And, you know, that's where passion comes in to give you an extra boost to carry on in the face of great adversity. Thirdly, 
I think we really genuinely need to care about people. I mean, say, you know, the, 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 um, you know, the, the clue is in the title of human rights work. So if you don't care about people, this isn't really the type of work that you're going to excel in. Fourthly, there's no doubt about it to do this area of work, regardless of which side you're on, it involves a great degree of hard work. Fifthly, to do the work that I do and to represent the types of clients that I represent, you need to be selfless and you need to be prepared to work for little and often for no reward. That is a lot to ask of many people, but the, the reality is the rewards you get from doing this type of work oftentimes does not come from financial gain, but from other rewards, the satisfaction you have from, you know, um, being a trailblazer, creating new law, but, you know, the financial rewards are not, not particularly great in this area of work, particularly if this is an area that you are exclusively doing. Absolutely. I mean, I, re I relate very much to all of what you say there, that, you know, the, the passion, hence the name of this, podcast the passion factor has to be front and center you have to absolutely care about who you're representing and, and why you're representing them and, and trying to, to to bring palpable change to their to their lives um, and certainly when I'm um, advising students and young professionals I always say to them that the financial side is is not why we, we go into this work because it's it, it the remuneration is not high always but it's about other things and other ways that we can help and support people. You mentioned before in talking about your own journey and your, your um, it's a particular university that there was a professor that helped you. Um, and we know that certainly in many sectors, networking is an important factor and, and helps us in our career. Um, and how has it helped you in, in your career? And, and certainly do you have any tips or advice for, for those who are listening about how networking might help? Because sometimes it's quite counterintuitive to us to network and it feels uncomfortable and it doesn't feel right, but but it can bring benefits and rewards to us at the end of the day. Yeah, I think um, networking is invaluable and that means you have to be um, in the right places at the right times, meeting the right people. Um, I was very fortunate in that I had very, very good law professors who saw promise in me and wanted to push me and wanted and wanted the best for me. I think I'm often asked by newbies to human rights work and um, you know, new lawyers coming into the area of what they should do. And I'm saying, well, you know, you really have to put yourself um, about and go to um, conferences, join organisations, um, you know, believe in, believe in the cause and push the cause that you believe in. Um, it's not just good enough, I think, to think that you can just be fantastic academic on paper and believe you will do well in this area. It doesn't work like that. Um, I, I, you know, I, I try to say to people who are new to this area, it's not just what you know, it's, you know, how you demonstrate your knowledge you know, uh, uh, what your beliefs are. 
um, I think that's really important, particularly trying to get into, uh, you know, a good, uh, good organisation. Um, so, you know, networking is, is important. Yeah, absolutely, definitely so. And if I can sort of move away from that sort of working and breaking into the sector, looking more at the day-to-day, I will ask you sort of what what to describe a sort of typical day in the life of of a human rights barrister, but I'm guessing there might not be a typical day for you. (laughs) And a rough idea of of what life is like sort of in in your day. (laughs) You're you're, you're absolutely right in saying that um, there isn't a typical day or is there a typical human rights barrister or typical rights lawyer? Because doing this work, I find that we're all very individual and all very unique. I can describe my day. Um, I get up very early. Um, I've made it a lifetime, um, you know, thing on, on for me to be up, to rise early start day early and I make a to-do list um, of things that I need to do that day. And then I also make um, a list of monkeys that I want to get off my back. Now let me explain what I mean by monkeys. You know those things that are really irritating you and that you really need to do and then things that that cause you a lot of worry like a monkey sitting on your shoulder, chatting in your ear all the time, mm-hmm. you come to your footing. Well, I, I always make a list of monkeys that I, that I want to get off my back um, to, to keep those under control. And I go about trying to deal with the, um, the monkeys um, first thing, uh, if I can get rid of one, of one or two of those, and I, I feel that I've achieved something that day. So I have a to-do list and I have a list of monkeys. Um, then I think it's really important that you keep your mind and body in, in good order. And how I go about that is I like to go, I like to train in the morning or I go for a long hike. I tend to go for about you know 10 kilometer hike every every day. It's a habit that I I've been doing for years and it's become even more acute in times of COVID. And then I'll get back after that. I'll pr- probably be back home by about 7, 7 a.m., you know, get showered, have to spend some family time. And then by about half eight after family time, I'm down to work. And the first things that I'll be doing is I'll be working on my to-do list that I've already um, um, set out, clearing my emails, dealing with more monkeys, and then I'll, my typical day might be doing some advice work, writing an opinion, having conferences with new clients or conferences with old clients, or if it's a court day, court will generally start at about half nine, ten o'clock, and, and, and I'll, you know, spend either a day in court or a meeting in court. Um, at the end of court, if it's court day, um, typically about 4.30, I'll be doing some more conferences immediately after court. And um, around 4.30 to 6 o'clock tends to be conference time in the evening. And I'll finish up the day with telephone calls and my day nowadays finishes at about 7 o'clock. And then I try not to do anything else in the evening. I'm just 
and the rest of the evening just doing family things. So, you know, that, that's my typical day. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, you put my 10,000 steps to shame by doing your very long walk. Um, absolutely. 10,000 steps is good. No, I, that's, my, that's what I have to do every day. That kind of gets me away from my desk. Um, and I wear my Fitbit and I have to do my 10,000 steps. And, and it, yeah, that, that's what keeps me, keeps me motivated. Sort of a slightly di- different sort of question. Um, sort of thinking about your career and, and, and everything that you've done and the variety of work and, and you know, what has, would you say, has been a sort of a seminal moment or a highlight or, or a highlights of, of your career to date, something that really sort of stays with you now? So it's a couple of things, actually. This year um, has been a real pinnacle of my career because becoming Professor of Law at Gresham College Mm. just been amazing for me it's enabled me to reach a wider audience of the important message of why rights matter um you know i've got now got a global audience who um you know tune in to this prestigious um 400 year old college that took a chance on making me one, one of its law professors so i just feel blessed about that and that's just been amazing and I feel very proud and, and honoured to be a law professor at Gresham College. In terms of actual casework, there's so many cases. If I was to pick one, I suppose the case of it could probably be the inquest that I did in the case of Christopher Older. Christopher was a former soldier, paratrooper, black man who, um, you know, in, I think, 1998 was um, at a nightclub in Hull in the north of England, northeast of England. He got into a dispute with somebody. He was assaulted. Uh, he suffered a head injury and was taken to the local hospital, the Hull Royal Infirmary. There he was. Um, suffering from the head injury and was being very disruptive, but not because he was particularly bad, but just because he had an injury, head injury, and wasn't thinking rationally. Hospital couldn't control him and they called the police. What thereafter happens is um, uh, unclear, but he's taken to the police station, he arrives at the police station, and he's just in a much worse condition, and he's left on the floor of this police station and choking in his own blood and dies on CCTV in front of five white police officers who are standing around asking Jason and doing nothing to assist him until he passes his last breath and they realise that he's literally died in front of him. That was a really difficult case because um, there were in terms of interested persons at this inquest, about 12 interested persons, and I was against nearly all of them who was trying, you know, they were trying to argue the rights of the police officers, the rights of the state, and contrary to the rights of Christopher Holder. I was representing his family, and in the end, um, the jury on this inquest um, found that these police officers unlawfully killed and Christopher Older, and this was a case which, to my mind, was so difficult, so against all the odds, but with persistence, 
if the jury were able to come back with the right verdict, the right conclusion. So, you know, that was a real battle, but, you know, one of the highlights of my, my career today. So, you know, I think a case like that will will never leave you, really. It, it's so shocking in so many ways. And um, But as you say, so the right prevailed at the end and, and the police were, were bound to have unlawfully killed him. Is there somebody who's really made a difference to your career? Somebody who... And we talk about, when I, again, advise students, I talk about finding a mentor or a mentors who can sort of travel with us along our human rights career. What do you think about that, the value of mentorship and in, the, in your own case, perhaps somebody who's, who's helped you along the way or people? I think mentorship is really important. And in fact, I've been mentored for the last 25 years, people coming. Um, but yeah, I, I would say there are Three groups of people who've made a real difference in my career. First, my parents. Um, my parents um, showed me the value of hard work. You know, they didn't have a lot. My parents came to the United Kingdom in the late 50s, early 60s as part of the Windrush generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, just worked their socks off. My mother who has determination that she never stops anything she starts until she finishes. And, but, you know, they were inspirational to me, showing me um, that the importance of starting and finishing and getting jobs done. So that's the first group, my, my parents. Secondly, uh, I think I would have to mention Tony Jeffers teaching. Because he gave me a break at Wellington Street. Had it not been for Tony, I don't know if I would be the um, human rights, civil liberties lawyer I am, I am today. He gave me that break when he met me at um, the NCCL, National Council of Civil, civil Liberties, now known as Liberty. And he said, hey, What are you doing at this commercial set? Why don't you come and um, meet with? The lawyers in my chambers, and I'll be forever indebted to Tony for that. And finally, I think the person who I'm extremely grateful to for actually mentoring me when I started at Garden Court Chambers has got to be the fantastic uh, Dr. Courtney Griffiths QC. He mentored me in my early days, and he taught me what amazing advocacy should look like and how it is done. He literally took me under his wing and showed me the ropes. So those three groups of people, my parents, Tony Jiffer and Courtney Griffiths, really made a difference in my career. Absolutely. And yeah, there are people who, who kind of hold our hand along the way and, and help us and guide us. And, and certainly I know I valued the advice of, of people along the way and it's, it's been invaluable, absolutely. Thinking sort of the, the sort of final thoughts, um, the work that we do uh, as human rights, civil liberties lawyers is hard and tough and we're really dealing with difficult issues um, and we may be working in challenging parts of the world and you mentioned there before sort of burnout and exhaustion are, are real sort of things and real issues for us. Um, something that I always tell young people when they're starting out and students is to be aware of that side of the work that we do, that it, it can affect us deeply um, in many ways. What advice can you offer 
about that you know, the lifestyle the challenges and, how, and and i suppose coping strategies how, how we best can manage that that side of the work that we do it's so easy in this work to get burnt out mm-hmm. i um, was nearly burnt out in 2014 and i had to take some time out for me because i was doing too much but we need to um, remember that oftentimes we don't take time out to replenish ourselves um, to, you know, um, for our own mental well-being. And I think that's really important. So what I do uh, is I take time out um, every day. I do things for me that are not law-related. I train, as I told you, I walk. I, I love music, I play an instrument, I'm, I'm a saxophonist, so I, I can lose myself in my practice. And I spend a lot of time with family. And I think it's really important to do that. And I also make sure that I, I eat well because it, it, you can't be a good lawyer if you're ill. And I've realised that. Absolutely, absolutely. We, you know, if we want to do the best that we can for our clients, which we do, you know, we, we need to be. On good shape ourselves or in good form ourselves so that, that's really important and it's something as i say that i tell i tell young people all the time is just you make sure that you look after yourself first and because this work is so very tough and so so very demanding in, in many ways so sort of drawing this to a close and and you know what what i suppose are your final sort of pearls of wisdom and 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 the best piece of advice that you can offer to people who want to work in this sector because there are so many people who who want to to work in human rights and civil liberties and see the importance and value of this work so i suppose yeah what what final pieces of of advice can you offer well i do have some advice but it's general advice but i think it's applicable human rights work it's applicable to most areas of work but yeah sure Particularly this type of work, which is quite difficult to get into. You know, so the first thing I'd say is um, all too often I meet people who say they're interested and they have a dream of doing this type of work, but they never are they're never specific about what their dream is. They have this wishy-washy dream in their head. And I say write your goal down, reduce it to paper. That that somehow creates some magic and it becomes crystal, it becomes real. Secondly, make a plan about how to go about achieving your goal. Thirdly, go about it. Take action. Take that step, you know, work on that first step in your plan. Fourthly, don't listen to naysayers. These are the people who say, oh, you can't do that, or it never work, or it's too difficult. There's enough naysayers around. Try to just get the naysayers out of your life. And finally, never, ever stop. That's something that I've taken from my mother with her determination. Absolutely. You know, I mean, those are five very valuable pieces, um, pieces of advice. As you say, they're applicable across any area of work and any profession. Um, but I think are very germane and very relevant for our, our, our sector, the human rights sector, which is so tough and challenging and so many people trying to to get into it. Thank you so very much for being so open and honest and and sharing your your own journey with us and your insights. Um, I know that people listening to this will will very much appreciate it. Um, So thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to speak with you.